listening to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guests. And i got to tell you something, people. It's coming summertime now, and you know what summer means? It means it's cherry time. Now, I'm a guy who loves cherries. That's all I'm going to say. And back here in New Jersey, in California, you get produce all the time when I lived out there. Here, you know, you're going to get produce so much. And it's a season. I've been eating them crazy. And I'm going to tell you, they're good for you. So that's my, that's my commercial for cherries. Go out and get some. Anyway, we have a great show today. My guest has so much going on. I mean, he has a, he has a new, his group is re-releasing a bunch of albums. He has his group Wang Chung. They did a, a whole album with an orchestra. He has a solo album, and he's just had an incredible career. And my guest is Jack Hughes. How you doing, Jack? I'm great. Thank you, Steve. How are you doing? No problem. No problems. No, I'm feeling good. So, um, good. I got to ask like you. What's that? Cherry, is that? It's the same here in the UK. You know, cherries you get at a certain season, and this is it. And, uh, you know, eating the local cherries is just one of the best things. Oh, because they're so good. The funny is, and I just wish they could come up with one that was pitless, and that would make it perfect. <laughs> Right. <laughs> so I want to talk about uh, Wang Chung and the in the, the start of your band, but I want to first talk about. I'm, I'm not probably even going to pronounce it right. Orcus Orcusiography. Now, yeah, yeah. now it's such a it's such a cool idea because it's funny. I just saw the Who in Philly, and they played in front of an orchestra. How did you come up with this concept, and and what was the whole the whole uh, steps to get it done? Well, we were approached by a, a company that does this sort of project, you know, where they take uh, the, the guy running it, John Bryan, is basically a big 80s fan, and uh, he did an album with Flock of Seagulls last year, uh, and he contacted us, and we had a meeting with him, he said, you know, would you be interested in doing a couple of tracks, and Nick and I sort of twisted his arm, <laughs> and he eventually agreed to do a, a whole album, you know, and uh, the project was really, obviously he wanted to do the hits, so Dance All Days, uh, Let's Go, and Everybody Have Fun Tonight, uh, but he was also into, he knew the band, and he knew some of our back catalogue stuff, and so we did some of the more obscure stuff as well. And uh, yeah, so we did the whole album, and it's getting uh, great reviews, especially from the fans, who are the most critical, I think, when it's like songs they love being put into another format. Now, what is it like you listening to it in another format? Because I'm sure your songs have been around for a while, you've heard them on the radio, you've played them live on how you play them. What is it like? Does it give a new freshness to your music when you sit there and you hear this 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 uh, new version. I think it does. I think it gives it more depth, actually. Um, if that's not too weird a thing to say, you know, especially there's a song called Overwhelming Feeling, which is on our most recent album, which back in 2012, uh, called Taser Up. Uh, and, we, you know, we did a sort of, uh, it, it's a slightly Beatlesy sort of thing, you know, slowish, and certainly the way we did the drums was very much uh, in homage to Ringo, you know. Uh, but the new version doesn't have any drums. It's very orchestra-centered. And I think it sort of brings out the sort of depth of the song, really, you know, um, so, and to live and die in LA as well. We've done a, a version of it, which is a bit more like how we started playing it live, where we play the song sort of at the kind of original tempo, but the last section is much slower. And when that happens on the orchestral version, you know, there's a lot of emotion that comes out of that. And uh, yeah, so depth is what I think these orchestral recordings give it. See, that's awesome because uh, and to live and die in LA, I mean, it's such a great song from such a great movie. But um, Thank you. yeah, yeah. Now, that's cool. How, how, when did you get interested in music? Were you a young child or I talked to so many different musicians. Some get interested as a teen. Sometimes some of them watched, you know, the Beatles on the, on the Ed Sullivan show. What was your defining move, uh, moment when you decided that, you know, you were interested in music? Well, when I was eight years old, I heard, please, please me on the radio. Uh, in the kitchen, you know, my mom was doing the washing up and I was just, I saw can remember it in a strange sort of way, you know, and I was sort of sitting at the kitchen table and then this music came on and I, and the light just went on for me somehow, you know, uh, and the chorus, you know, that like, come on, come on, come on, come on, that stuff, you know, and my mum went, oh, come on then, and got sort of irritated <laughs> with the record and I kind of thought, great, this, she doesn't like this and I really do and it was this moment of like, this is my world <laughs> and this is where I want to be, you know, and then I think pretty soon after that, uh, they did 
uh, the Royal Variety Performance here in the UK. So I got to see them, and from then I just said to my parents, I want a guitar and I want to be like that. And my dad was a musician, and uh, I'm very glad that he encouraged me in all of that. You know, So they bought me a guitar and I had proper sort of classical guitar lessons. And um, uh, so yeah, from the age of eight, I was pretty fixated on being a musician. Now, what's the difference for any listeners? What's the difference between, you know, when you say classical guitar lesson and regular? I know there's a different way to play. Classical's just, it's different. But when you get lessons, is it a different style when they teach you classical? And does it prepare you to play rock? Yeah, I mean, this, I went to this, <clears throat> she seemed like an old lady to me. She was probably, you know, in her 50s or something, you know. But uh, she, she basically, uh, you know, classical guitar in a way is about how you hold the instrument, you know, so you sort of put it between your legs, if you know what I mean, and the neck's right up in the air, and there's a certain way to do it. And she never made me do that. She let me have it in the hip, sort of Dylan position, <laughs> you know. And uh, But I guess the thing was she taught me how to read music, uh, and that was the cool thing about the lessons, you know. Uh, and so by the time I got to the age of 18, when I had to sort of work out what I was going to, because I wanted to go to university, but I wanted to do music, so I decided to do both. And I ended up doing a classical degree because back in the 70s, there were no jazz courses or rock courses here in the UK, certainly. You know? um, and at that time, I knew nothing about classical music in the sense of Mozart and Beethoven and all that stuff. I didn't know their music. But three years at uh, music college and university, uh, made me really get into that stuff and uh, so yeah so the, the classical thing I guess really it opened me up to music with a capital N if you know what I mean as opposed to pushing me into a genre into a sort of ghettoized sense of classical so you, you start playing and you're, you're getting good and you become 18 you go to university when do you just decide you're going to form a band <laughs> from the age of 12 you know so that's when I was at secondary school uh, that again I was just I lived in a, a world of uh, assuming that I would just be like uh, you know John Lennon and then later like Jimi Hendrix you know I just thought that's what was going to happen <laughs> um, so I was in bands all, all, all that time I guess the time when I was at university I was getting into like classical stuff I was a little more into being a composer I suppose that's how I saw myself you know uh, but when I left uh, the Royal College of Music um, I realized I just didn't know anybody in that world you know music is all about networks really you know getting making it in the music business is about knowing people not in a nepotistic sort of way but just having bunches of people who are into what you're doing and encouraging you and you encourage them so the networks are really important and I had no networks in the classical world so I sort of moved back to my hometown and immediately fell into working with bands and stuff like that and then being a writer I was always messing up the bands because they were quite often covers bands and I'd write songs and they'd be like oh wow these are cool and they play them and then the band would break up because <laughs> it just didn't work uh, and then I met Nick and I met Nick through a, a, a Musicians Wanted ad in a paper called The Melody Maker here in the UK and uh, yeah we, we sort of hit it off together and I guess between 1978 and probably 81 we went through various incarnations of different bands different lineups and eventually came up with Wang Chung now when you're, you know, you went through different lineups, and you know you and Nick had a good relationship. Do you, can you tell as a musician, and even now when you play with your, your quartet, I mean, when you're putting that together, can you, can you tell if someone's just not going to sync with you? Is there an instinct in you, or you just know as soon as you start playing? Like even back then saying, you know what, this lineup's just not going to work. Um, you do, you know, it's, it's, it's very much, uh, you, you sort of read people. That sounds a little contrived. It's a bit deeper than that somehow. But, you know, with Nick, we, we just sort of hit it off. We had very similar musical tastes, uh, similar kind of people that we were listening to. And with the quartet, uh, Sam Bailey, the piano player, you know, we, we hit it off as well. You know, we get on as people we're interested in, stuff beyond music, similar tastes and stuff like that. And yet there's also contrast, you know, so there are, you know, like Sam is into sort of the totally weird, out there, improvisatory stuff, you know. And so I learned a lot from him. And simply Nick was really into Frank Zappa, for example, who I, I still have, have trouble with in a way, you know, but, but Nick is an absolute <laughs> super fan, you know. Now, the original name was Huang Chong. Where did you find that yeah. name? <laughs> I was reading a book on a composer, a German composer called Karl-Heinz Stockhausen. And Karl-Heinz Stockhausen wrote kind of electronic music in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, <clears throat> and was 
was a massive influence on me when I was at music college, you know. And if you can sort of look at him on YouTube, his lectures and stuff are still fascinating. His, his picture is one, he's one of the characters on the cover of Sgt. Pepper. So he was a big force at the time, you know, when that music was very obscure to a lot of people. He somehow brought it into the mainstream, you know, a super cool guy. So I was reading this book about him, and he talked about Huang Chung, H-U-A-N-G, C-H-U-N-G. And he defined it as meaning yellow bell. And the yellow bell is this mythical bell that rings at the center of the universe and produces millions of vibrations. And our reality is one of those vibrations. And the job of a musician is to harmonize with that vibration. And that creates a sort of good balance and a, and a good vibe for everybody. Now, I know in the beginning of your band that you guys didn't use your real name and you still don't. Why did you do that? Why did everyone choose a, a different name in the beginning? Was it just something to be different? Or, I mean, what? It's just what everyone was doing. You know, it was, you know, Joe Strummer and Johnny Rotten and Sid Vicious, you know, this kind of having these fake names, you know. But in a way, I think because Nick went back to his name, uh, Darren as well, you know, I just stuck with Jack Hughes. I don't know why, really, but I think for me it was like quite a useful alter ego, you know. Uh, I think that being in the rock business and then being successful in it was quite a sort of roller coaster ride, you know. And I think being Jack Hughes was quite useful to deal with it all. <laughs> now, now, where did Jack Hughes come from? Sort of joking about precisely, you know, this, you know, people changing their names, and he was sort of saying, "Oh, Jack Hughes would be funny." Jack Hughes, which is from the, the French, uh, "I accuse you," and it's a book by Graham Greene actually about some social injustice. And uh, there's been a few books called Jack Hughes, so it, it's like standing up and fighting for your rights. Is that sort of name, which which I kind of liked. You know? Well, now Wang Chung is together. Your first few albums, how do they do? And were you growing as a writer in that even though you were young? Yeah, most definitely. I mean, there's nothing like experience in the world, uh, criticism, and um, just playing your songs to audiences to make you develop as a writer. You know? uh, so our first album, Wang Chung, we recorded in the UK, and it kind of did, well, I, I guess from a... Uh, what should we say, an objective, cold-hearted point of view. It didn't do very well. Uh, it didn't have any hits on it, really. So Arista, who we were signed to at that time, were kind of like debating whether to keep us. Um, but eventually they wanted to do a second album. But at that point, we changed our management. Uh, and we uh, started to work with a guy called David Massey. And David had the great insight, I think, to drop Arista and sign directly to an American label because uh, by that time I'd written Dance All Days and he just thought that was a great song but he heard it as a sort of an American hit rather than a UK hit uh, we can go into uh, what that all means I guess you know um, but that was the sort of defining moment in our career in many ways so we signed to Geffen we thought about changing our name completely but David Geffen actually advised us to keep the name but just respell it so that people weren't completely alienated when they looked at it and um, so we became Wang Chan and we made points on the curve. Uh, and that, with Dance All Days on it, was a, a much more successful record. But this was in the days, of the beginnings of MTV. Uh, and so I guess we were a band where we were known by particular songs as opposed to a band that was known by the album. And so Dance All Days became this sort of iconic single and the, and the video for it too. Now... What was it like as an artist to know that a American record label was interested in you, and especially after someone said they think it's more of an American hit? You guys must have been stoked. You must have been happy as all yeah. hell. Incredible, yeah. And I, and I remember coming to L.A. for the first time, you know, and I, mean, I was, you know, from a sort of working-class family. I mean, not that we were, like, poor exactly, you know, but we certainly didn't fly in airplanes and stuff, you know. So my flight to L.A. was one of my first flights, I think, you know, and it was uh, coming to L.A. was in incredible, you know. And the business in America was just so much more pro than it was in the U.K., So, which isn't to denigrate the U.K. The U.K. has a certain way of doing things, which is kind of a bit eccentric I suppose you know but the kind of guys that would run a UK record company um, were you know they were guys who went to Oxford or you know universities and they, and they sort of were educated middle class people you know but it was a different vibe in America um, you know they, 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 people really knew the business and treated it seriously and they would talk about 
uh, the, you know, the details of a number one record and who produced it and who wrote it and what other songs those guys have written and where they were born and what bands they've been in. And it was, everybody had this sort of massive encyclopedic knowledge about the business and were totally committed to it. And that was really thrilling. It was a really professional setup. You know? Well, now videos were so big back then. And yeah. when you did your first video, that play got on MTV, did you notice people started recognizing you guys? Yeah, in the States especially, yeah. It was interesting, because you know, I lived in the UK, but spent probably a third of the year in LA, you know. But so in the UK, we were pretty, like, not known, and because we were signed to an American label, we weren't promoted in the UK particularly, you know. Uh, so uh, in the UK, I was uh, sort of not so well known, although Dance for Days, I suppose it did go through a phase of, uh, that recognition because we were on top of the pops a couple of times, you know, which was the big show that was in everybody's front rooms in those days. You know. um, but yeah, in, in the States, there was a lot of street recognition and uh, it was exciting, you know. Now, how did you start touring in the States? What what was your, when, was that, when did that happen? Well, that was pretty much uh, in, in the deep end. Um, 1984, you know, Dance Days came out at the beginning of the year, I think, uh, sort of like, March, April, maybe. And through that summer of 84, we were on tour with the Cars. And the Cars had done Heartbeat City and um, Drive was a massive hit, you know, because of um, uh, Live Aid and all that stuff. So, uh, yeah, we were on tour with them. So we were playing, like, you know, to sort of 60, 80,000 people a night in these big megadromes all over the, the United States. And, uh, yeah, I guess I found it sort of uh, stressful actually um but in a sort of psychological way i suppose not it wasn't like the day-to-dayness of it was stressful it was just this, maybe the expectations or my own expectations you know i think back then i loved making the recordings i loved the sort of peace and serenity of the studio and this sense back then that with all these new machines drum machines fair like synthesizers that you could make in inverted commas the perfect pop record you know? and i think i found the chaos of touring you know where the sound was different every night and uh, you know whether you could hear yourself and blah 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 i think i found that more sort of disturbing <laughs> you know what i mean but that's um you know like one big memory i have is sort of doing an interview uh, after we've done our set because we did it like an opening act kind of set so we played for 45 minutes you know although because dance all days was a big hit the, the stadiums were full, you know, it wasn't like everyone was in the bar waiting for the cars, you know, they were there to see us as well, you know. Uh, and I remember doing this interview in a sort of like press box, which was like halfway back in this kind of um, football stadium. And it was really the first time that I'd taken in how many people were actually in the, in the audience, because when you're standing on the stage, um, you know, right at the front, and like super troopers are in your face and stuff, you can see kind of 10, 20 rows back, but you can't really see anything else, you know. And you can't, you hear the roar of the crowd, but you don't quite take it all in. But it was more than until I was in that press box, that I thought, God, you know, we're playing to a lot of people here. It felt, it felt very exciting. Well... Around that time, I believe in '85, you were sought out to do uh, when uh, to live and die in LA. What is that like yeah. um, for you to write that? First of all, I believe Dance Hall Days is in a scene in that movie when they're at the strip club. There's a small That's snippet right. of that song. What yeah. was it? What was it like for you? Because Freakman's a big director, and it's it's Hollywood, man. I mean, were you yeah. excited to write that song? Did he give you a guideline on what he wanted you to write? Yeah. Well, what happened was we were trying to sort of follow up Dance All Days with a, a, a second, well, technically third, but a second album for, for Geffen, you know. And we weren't, it wasn't going well, you know, and um, we were slightly kind of wondering what to do because I think, you know, that we, we spent a bit of time in the studio, but the songs I was writing were a little too complicated, I think, to be thought of as hit songs, you know. I think they were wrong about that, but then I would. Um, uh, and then suddenly, out of the blue, I was visiting this friend of mine in, in London, and his phone rang in his apartment because in those days there were no mo- mobiles and stuff, you know. And uh, he picked it up and he said, oh, uh, yeah, it, it's for you. He gave me the phone. And I thought, nobody knows I'm here, <laughs> you know. And this American lady said, you know, Mr. William Freakin would like to speak to you in half an hour. Will you still be at this number? I said, yeah. So um, my friend had to go out and do some work. I think he was teaching somewhere. And I sat in his flat on my own and, uh, and then... Mr. William Freakin phoned up and I had this sort of hour-long, kind of hour-long conversation with him. And he talked about this movie he was making and, um, and he talked about how he was using weight, which is a track on points on the curve. He was using weight as a temp track. So in other words, he would shoot footage 
Ashes back in the evening, he would play that track just randomly to sort of have an atmosphere. And uh, I think he basically got addicted to it and was like, this is what I want the soundtrack to be. So he said to me, I want you and your band, Jack, to go in the studio and, and record an hour's worth of music just like Wait and just send it to me and I'll cut it into the film. And what I don't want you to do is write a song called To Live and Die in LA. That's not what this is. It's instrumental music, you know. So at that time, I was kind of like, great so so nick and i which was the band nick, nick me and a drum machine uh went in the studio and we geffen gave us a week they weren't that keen on us sort of taking time out of trying to write the next hit song uh and we spent a week in the studio and produced all this music without seeing the movie uh which sounds sort of weird to some people but um that's what we did and we sent them the, the music off to, to bill uh obviously that took sort of three days to get there because again it was all FedEx and stuff you know you couldn't use the internet to ping <laughs> things around you know and um, yeah and I got a call from him probably two weeks later and he just said the music's amazing I want you and Nick to come out and uh, just see what we've done and he put us on a flight out to LA uh, first class I remember which the first time I'd ever been in first class probably in anything actually <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, we went with him to Toledo which was the sort of big sound stage in Hollywood um, I think it was on the Paramount lot, actually. Uh, maybe I'm wrong about that, actually. But uh, anyway, watching the opening of To Live and Die in LA was one of the high points of my, of my life, my career. You know what I mean, it was, uh, this was before the song opened the movie. So it began with that amazing shot of LA in the sort of twilight, orangey, smoggy dust, you know, with the palm trees blowing in this sort of wind and, uh, and uh, that opening thing with a choir comes in and they sort of glissando down and all that stuff. I was just blown away with what I saw, you know. A fantastic thing. And and, it, and the movie looked great. And I, we met uh, Willem Dafoe, who at that time was a, a really young actor. It was really like his first film. And, and Bill Peterson as well. It was just an incredible experience. And like, as you say, it was Hollywood. It was the real thing. And it felt like the real thing. And being with Billy, you know, he's the real deal. You know, and, uh, and you feel great with him. Now, the movie's People check it out. People start to get there's no New Year music, but they're getting to know it more. And then when Mosaic came out, did you know it would just blow up like it did? I mean that that put you everywhere. Everybody, I mean you know if you're you're a musician, so you you're around it. But I remember me, everybody was saying everybody Wang Chung tonight. I mean it was one of those things. It just it it swept because I was in college that it swept the, a whole group of twenty to twenty five year olds. I mean, did yeah. you see that coming? Well, you know, it was uh, after To Live and Die in L.A., you know, Geffen were kind of like, okay, now you need to write a fucking hit song. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Stop messing around with all this arty stuff, you know. So there was a sense that, uh, you know, this, this was like make or break, you know. So we piled a lot of uh, intent into making it a record that would be, a, you know, a number one record. And we worked with Peter Wolf. Uh, who had produced number one records in the past, you know, it was, uh, I guess you could say, formularized to, a, to an extent. Although I think with Wang Chung, we're incapable of working to formula. So even everybody at Fun Tonight, which is certainly a commercial song, has that sort of middle section with like loads of jazzy chords in it. And, um, and, and it has sections in a different key from the main part of the song. So if you bother to sort of really sort of check it out, and I don't suggest you have to, but if you do, uh, you know, there's quite a lot to it going on, you know, and, uh, so, but yeah, but everybody felt like, yeah, it really did blow up. And we were doing all these, you know, like the Joan Rivers show. I remember having to see it for the first time on the Joan Rivers show because, uh, you know, in the studio you do it in bits, obviously. And there's that really high note in the central section. And I, uh, I just never done that live before. And so I was, we were, the band were playing to track, so they were all completely relaxed in the in the free dream room thing, you know. And I was really thinking, "Shit, <laughs> you know, this is coming up and uh, singing it live, you know." But fortunately, I got through it, you know. I sang it well, and it was all good. But it was a lot of pressure, or it felt like a lot of pressure at the time. Well, as as you're building up on the uh, the chart, you're going, you're getting bigger. MTV had a big uh, big play too, because as I said, I tell. You know, younger people, MTV used to be great. It wasn't all these crappy shows. But what was who who helped you create the different videos? Because you had a cutting edge type video with the with the um, jump cuts. Who did you? Was that your idea, or how did you get to that video? 
Well, we got, uh, we worked with uh, Kevin Godley and Lord Cream on it, who were the sort of top directors at the time, you know. And I guess the video that everybody was in love with uh, in that period of time was uh, Peter Gabriel's Sledgehammer, you know, and the stop motion thing on it. So we were kind of wanting something like that. And they came up with the idea of uh, sort of filming it in this kind of neutral space and just uh, editing it to shit basically you know what I mean you know to get this you know uh, it was an easy video for me to make in the sense that uh, I just had to stand it as still as I possibly could and sing the song into the camera without changing my facial expression or anything and then I did that 10 times and obviously through that time you you do different things you know and, and by cutting all the different takes together you get this sort of flickering effect that they achieved and uh, yeah I still think it's a super cool video now you had said you know the the label said you needed to put an album with hits how do you go as a writer go from writing something that as you said is artsy to something that has to be more pop how did you attack that as a writer it's difficult and i've never really mastered the art of that you know uh i know that after we did everybody have fun tonight you know uh i was put in a room with diane warren (laughs) to write a hit and i just couldn't get into it you know and i just for me uh i just have to sort of write the next thing i'm writing and, and quite often that isn't a hit you know so um it, it's, it's a it's a tough one I, I think i guess you could look at it that as in all the arts really you know success is something that comes to you uh sort of unbidden in a sense uh, and it's to do with you and your particular persona you know but you can't sort of hang on to it somehow um you have to be sort of true to yourself and uh, enjoy it while it's there and then when it leaves you you know then you enjoy that as well now you're getting bigger how does that change with your touring and your lifestyle i mean getting huge getting more recognized and you're a young guy at that point how how does that affect your life well i guess because of this split of like being you know successful and in inverted commas in america and yet still being virtually unknown in the UK, <laughs> um, you know, and I had a family by then, so in 1984, my daughter Violet was born, and she was the third of my three children, so by 1987, when we were doing uh, Everybody Have Fun Tonight, you know, uh, I had a family, and that kept me very grounded, you know, and I think, you know, David was a great manager in the sense that he didn't just let us have the money and, you know, spend it all on a Ferrari or something, you know, he sort of eked it out to us, you know, so my lifestyle didn't change hugely, you know, I never felt like I was wealthy, and, and I never particularly aspired to be wealthy. Um, you know, I, I think I was always, you know, I was eight years old and obsessed with the music, and I, and I was, you know, 32 years old and still obsessed with the music, and I'm now, well, I can't tell you how old I am, but I'm even more <laughs> obsessed with music. So that's what the thing for me, do you know what I mean? The, the focus has always been music, you know. And maybe the classical training helped, in a sense, to be very focused on music as a as a thing in itself, you know, as, rather than as a means to an end. Now, as a performing artist, performing live, you said how when you opened for the Cars, you noticed how big your uh, stadium was, and I believe you opened for Tina Turner after uh, yeah. Mosaic. What is it like when you're opening, but they knew Dance All Days before, but now they know a bunch of your songs. And now you're, they're playing, and they're, they're, they can't wait to hear these songs. How does that feel as an artist? I mean, does that just sit there and go, I've made it pretty much? I mean, how does it feel? It must feel great that people are singing back to you. Yeah, it does, yeah. I mean, that particular feeling of, like, uh, really getting that people love the music and know the music and it's part of the culture, I got later, you know. I think at the time, uh, I was always sort of feeling up. You know, my sights were on the, like, the next mountain top, you know what I mean, rather than the one I was on. And I'm certainly not the sort of person who's going to sit back and go, like, hey, I've made it. You know, uh, I don't think I've ever felt that in my life. <laughs> you know, yeah. So you guys are doing great, and then you go on a hiatus. How? What What happened there? What was it? Was Were you guys just tired of being Wang Chung? Or what? Did, how does that work? Because you are on the top of your game. Yeah, well, I think, uh, you know, with Everybody Have Fun Tonight, that, that was a, a big hit. We then followed it up with another album where the pendulum swung back more towards the artsy kind of stuff. And I guess my inclination as a musician is always towards, you know, the Beatles and towards sort of prog rock, in a way, you know, which is 
the sort of late 60s through the mid 70s you know so i was listening to bands like yes and pink floyd and genesis and led zeppelin who i would count as a prog band you know rather than a metal band and uh so they were the big things for me so albums to me were you know about songs that lasted 10 minutes and all that stuff so the walls had a call which was the follow up to Mosaic uh, had those kind of tracks on it but I think it was very out of step like very out of step with the times because uh, this was the beginning of the rise of grunge in America and uh, Geffen had in fact signed Guns and Roses who were massive and then they signed Nirvana you know so they were right at the heart of the change and I think Wang Chung we we weren't that you know and of course you can't suddenly become you know the mentality of someone 10 years younger, you know, effectively the next generation of musicians coming up. So uh, we, we kind of, we, we just didn't sort of have that cutting edge anymore. And uh, so, yeah, it was a natural thing to disband at that time. But I, I think also Nick and I had reached a point where we wanted to do separate things. You know, we'd really uh, divided at that point. And you know, Nick saw the band as a certain thing. I saw it as something else. So it, it was a natural point at around about 1990, I would say, for us to split and uh, go our separate ways. Now, when you split and go your separate ways, you know, you're, you're somewhat starting over, even though you are accomplished. Is it a scary feeling or and, and where did you know you wanted? What did you want to do at that point? Yeah, I guess, you know, I've never had plan b you know so it was always plan a and plan a is to write the next song in a sense so that's sort of what i did uh i did do a solo record for columbia uh which didn't come out in the end for political reasons rather than a reflection on the, the material but again i think i was writing in this slightly proggy out of touch kind of way you know uh and then um through the 90s well I, Pretty much after that, I got a call from uh, Tony Banks, who's the keyboard player in Genesis, uh, paradoxically, I guess, because you know, they were one of the great prog bands that I adored when I was a kid. And he'd done a solo album and asked if I would come and do the vocals on it and help him write some lyrics and stuff. Uh, and the connection with him was that the guy who produced my solo record for Columbia was, also, was um, Nick Davis, and he was doing all the Genesis albums at that time. So I met with Tony, and that was an amazing experience, you know, and uh, did the album with him. That was great. And then Chris Hughes, uh, who had produced Dance All Days, uh, got in touch with me and said, would I come and play some guitar for him on a record he was doing? And the plan was for me to spend a couple of days at his house in Bath doing that. And I ended up staying for about three months, <laughs> ended up sort of co-producing the record with him. And that experience of being a sort of producer was a big transformation for me, because I think as an artist, I was very narrow in my focus, you know, and I sort of almost didn't listen to a lot of music because I didn't want to get knocked off course. I thought I know best and I know how this has got to be. Uh, but that's uh, a terrible way for an artist to be, really, you know. Working as a producer, uh, I started listening to all the modern stuff. And at that time, there was so much great modern music. You know, there was Massive Attack and there was Bjork and Portishead and William Orbit was doing amazing stuff and Tricky and this sort of like early 90s stuff where hip hop and uh, a sort of kind of film music inspired approach to music was was happening and uh, it was very exciting and that was all a big influence on me and helped to move me into the space that I got to in the 2000s you know where I started working more in a sort of jazz space now was it intimidating to you to play with Tony because as you said Genesis you were a huge Genesis fan what is it like when yeah. you know first of all when he called you you must have been like oh my god this is amazing but is yeah. was it intimidating to you at all because this is someone that you know you look up to and of course you want to come across as you know cool yeah. or not really cool but you know you know <laughs> you know you're talented because he called you but what what goes through your mind when someone calls you that you pretty much have looked up to yeah uh yeah it was a little sort of intimidating really and i can remember sort of you know, sitting and listening to the stuff with him, and you know, he's, he's kind of you know, Tony's very meticulous uh, and knows exactly what he wants. You know, there's no kind of shall we try it this way, shall we try it that way? It's this is what I want. But I guess I, I'm 
can be that sort of musician. I can really sing pretty accurately and, you know, get stuff first take and all that stuff. And that's how Tony likes to work quick, you know. So I think pretty much we sort of got on. And um, Tony, of course, is very interested in classical music, but he loves all the sort of really romantic stuff, like, you know, Ratman and Arthur Tchaikovsky. And, and in, at that time, I used to tease him about that, say, oh, it's a lot of chocolate poxy, syrupy stuff. Do you mean you should be listening to Bach and Mozart and proper classical music, you know? <laughs> And uh, he, we used to have these sort of uh, arguments about it, you know, but all in good, all in good fun and stuff. And, and I remember taking him to a, a symphony concert one time to hear some Mozart, which because he was always saying Mozart sounds so simple, it's so boring, you know. And I was saying wrong, you know, it's it's like amazing. So I took him to hear this thing, which he grudgingly accepted was was pretty good. <laughs> now, you, and, and you guys also you reformed, and I believe in '97. And yeah. what brought that about? What what was the, the behind that i mean you said you guys had gone each way you know you, you're doing what you wanted to do but is it just yeah. something that you missed each other or is because people wanted to see you or what happened well i think uh through that time you know if nick and i were sort of in the room having to make a wang chung record you know we couldn't agree on anything you know but if we just sort of went to the pub together and hung out we'd have a great time you know we were great friends and, and nick at that time was working for record labels in a and r so he would occasionally call me in and say, can you sort this record out for me? And, you know, come meet these guys, you know. So we used to sort of hang out together and stuff. But, in, yeah, in 97, uh, I, I think To Live and Die in L.A. went sort of platinum or something. But Geffen sort of had a little award for us. And they decided they'd like to do a greatest hits album. And they asked us if we would write something new for that album. Uh, and that was the track Space Junk that we contributed to that. But 97, yeah, was this brief little thing where we came together and, and worked on a new song and uh, and basically uh, patted ourselves on the back a little bit about Wang Chang and uh, I remember the guys at Geffen being super nice to us and uh, looking after us. It was great. Now, you said in the 2000s you got more into the uh, jazz scene and you do have Jack Hughes and the quartet and yeah. you brought an album out a little while ago. Yeah. What what brought you, what gravitated you towards jazz? And once again, where do you start from? Because you have a rock lineage. You have what you've done before. How do you, it's like starting over. How do you go about that? Yeah, it, it kind of is actually. You know, jazz is very challenging, you know, for a rock musician. Um, but I think it came during the 90s, you know, when I was working with Chris in particular. And I remember what, you know, we were working with this band called The Definition of Sound, you know, and we would record during the day, and then in the evenings, uh, a lovely lady called Diana would come in and cook for us, and this was in the days when record companies spent money on <laughs> making albums, you know, and, uh, and Chris would put music on to sort of, like, educate the band, basically to be patronising about it, but really he was educating me, and one evening he put on Miles Davis's album, Kind of Blue, and it completely blew my mind. And I can't tell you why then, particularly because Peter Wolf in L.A. had played me some stuff by Miles, and, and I hadn't really got it. I, I liked it, but I didn't love it, you know. And Kind of Blue, I just loved it. And I bought a copy of it, and I started listening to what was happening. And I think what I really got about that album is that, you know, with pop records, for want of a better term for them, you know, but you control every parameter and the way that modern pop records are made where each layer is individually recorded and very manipulable and, uh, you know, you can get things exactly how you want them. Uh, making a jazz album is much more about letting musicians just play and especially as a writer, your job is to kind of get out of the way so that they can be great, you know, and that really made a lot of sense to me and uh, pretty soon after well uh, towards the end of the 90s uh, I moved out of London and uh, moved to the town I now live in called Canterbury in, in the UK and I, I met Sam because he was giving my daughter Violet piano lessons and Sam and I were sort of chat after her lesson and he would talk to me about you know uh, all, all kinds of musicians and um, I remember him talking to me about Lamont Young about uh, uh, oh, what's his name John Lewis I think it is who's the arranger and Gil Evans and stuff Andrew Hill these kind of quiet to me at least obscure people you know and I started listening to them and it just brought the Miles thing and I was really into Thelonious Monk as well uh, just really got into all his music so it's a particular kind of thing, you know. And when Violet went off to university, uh, I said to Sam, let's keep in touch, you know, come round and have a drink. And he did, um, but uh, he would sort of play the piano and, and we started playing monk tunes together and just sort of jamming on them. And if you know Thelonious Monk, 
Pope's music, you know, I mean, it's complicated music. It, in a way, it sounds like a child's written it, <laughs> but when you're trying to play it, it's, it's so sort of like jumps around everywhere, you know. And this led in the end, I, I guess, to me sort of thinking like, well, I, I'm going to write stuff myself so, so I can play it. And I started writing these little tunes for us to play. And once I started that, it, it just suddenly, all this music came out from sort of nowhere in a sense. And, and I wrote all the stuff that became the first quartet album and the second, you know. And uh, yeah, writing kind of instrumental, long form music that has this weird mixture of sort of jazz sensibilities, but also rock stuff in it as well. Um, became the sort of underpinning of the quartet and the crazy thing is that Canterbury has this whole legacy in a sense of bands that were doing that back in the 70s these bands like Soft Machine and Caravan and uh, Hatfield and the North sort of prog bands that were really influenced by jazz rather than by classical music and uh, that had a lot of improvisation and a lot of kind of very eccentric stuff going on in it you know so I, I sort of coming to Canterbury in a, in a sense was in a strange way, coming home, you know. Now, you you met the the piano guy who was teaching your daughter piano lessons. How did you assemble the rest of the band? And I mean, I'm sure you know jazz musicians have a clique. I'm sure you know they have. There's everyone's different. You know, there's rock musicians, rappers, yeah. jazz musicians. Were you yeah. worried that jazz musicians might think that you were a rocker, not a jazz guy? I mean, how did you go about putting the rest of the quartet together? Yeah, yeah. Well, initially, I sort of used local guys, but Pretty soon, you know, um, Sam will get gigs in London, and we started meeting these sort of London jazz players, and uh, and basically they're kind of happy to play with anybody. Do you know what I mean? I don't mean that they're sort of slapdash at all, you know, but we were doing something that I think they found interesting. You know, we could pay them, which is another thing jazz musicians like. You know, rock guys are more used to rehearsing for years and for nothing. I think you know, um, but jazz musicians, you know, there's also the whole thing that you just put the music in front of them. Uh, you know, that rehearsal's minimal in a sense. You know? But I think yeah, there was a guy who lived uh, in a town reasonably close to me, a guy called Paul Booth, who was a saxophone player, who was like off the scale, amazing. You know, but he would come and play with us. In fact, he plays on the recording we released at the beginning of this year, and uh, it's for my own. But he's to me a saxophone player who can kind of play at that almost. Well, I mean, I've done gigs with him where he's playing at a sort of Coltrane level for me. Do you know what I mean? He's like absolutely amazing. So you get these guys who are just brilliant. And I think jazz is such a sort of undervalued kind of music. You've got these highly talented players, you know, who are sort of, well, they're certainly not in it for the money. You know, they're. they're they have to really work at it, you know, just to earn a living, you know. But it's a, it's, a, it's a fascinating area of music. Now, how did you pick the song "Nobody's Fault But My Own"? I guess um, it, it was it was a sort of commission that came up. There's a festival in Canterbury uh, every year, uh, and it was a sort of side event in that, really, you know. And they said, you know, can you write something for your band? And this band, Siddhartha, who were like a, the next generation of sort of Canterbury rock bands, you know. And I knew the guys from Siddhartha because uh, I did a bit of teaching of, uh, I used to teach songwriting at the university, uh, which was really great um, for a while. Uh, and then, uh, then I... Didn't, didn't enjoy it so much. But anyway, so I knew uh, Joel and uh, Josh McGill, who are the, the guys that are the foundation of uh, Siddhartha. And uh, so, yeah, so we did this thing. So I, I had to basically think up something that we could do that didn't require a whole load of rehearsal. And one of, my, the, one of the Miles Davis tracks that I adore is his version of David Crosby's song, Guinevere. Now, you wouldn't think of Miles listening, listening to Crosby still as a Nash, but, but he did, apparently. <laughs> uh, but his approach to Guinevere was to do this, like, 30-minute improv on just, like, the opening phrase of the song essentially they never really get much beyond that and the whole thing is just on a drone with a sort of almost like an indian sitari type drone going through it you know so i thought well that will be the model and uh, and then i remembered uh, nobody's fault but my own which was on mutations a bex record which i love you know and i particularly love that song so i just sort of wrote the chart out it's literally a bit of a4 paper with a, a very simple structure and we played it at this concert and it was great we really enjoyed it and then we decided to record it in 2012 which we did and then siddhartha kind of went on this whole crazy uh, success curve you know where they got signed uh, to a record label in la you know just like i had done all those years before <laughs> and uh, and they made an album over there but 
things didn't sort of go so well ultimately and so now they're back in Canterbury so part of the reason why it's taken five years to release this track is they just weren't around for that time you know but now they're back and we released it uh, at the beginning of this well sort of I think it was in March wasn't it and we've done some gigs uh, in the UK to support it and they've gone incredibly well so that, that's been real fun gigging with them. Now, what is it like doing the gigs with with jazz? Because I'm sure the crowds aren't as big as when you're with Wang Chun. Yeah. Do you yeah. like the intimate place more because you are playing jazz? I mean, it seems jazz is more to me. You know, jazz is the best. I used to go to a place in Philadelphia. It's about when I smoke cigarettes and people smoked at the bar. You listen to the jazz and you drink your scotch, and it was a great yeah. time. Do you do you think that jazz? What is it like for you playing in smaller clubs? And do you think it's the better being more intimate? Not necessarily better, but I do love it. You know, it's different, and um, uh, and I and I guess you know, like these gigs we've done recently. You know, I, I think I'm sort of um, released in those shows as. You know, I bring the sort of rock thing to the party, if you like, you know. So the quartet, as it functioned in these shows we've done recently, is I have a, a bass player and a drummer who are from a band called Lead Bib, who are, they, they won the Mercury Prize, uh, which is a sort of prize given to innovative music um, every year. So they won it a few years ago. And they're a pretty out there free jazz ensemble. So I have Mark and the Ram playing, Sam's playing piano, and I play guitar. Uh, Sam is very kind of like free improv as well, but with a sort of classical tinge to it. And then I bring my sort of rock thing to it. And then there's the drummer from Siddhartha and, and, and bass player uh, Joel as well. So we've got two drummers, two bass players. So when people came to see this sort of inverted commas jazz gig, what they actually saw was something more like a kind of prog band. <laughs> and um, in Nobody's Fault, I think, is a song that people really get into you know they they accept that it's an improvisatory situation uh but when the tune comes around it's something to hang on to it's it's sort of like readable you know so jazz i think is still difficult for audiences and, and when it's a more pure kind of jazz then yes you're locked into that genre and it, and it is what it is but what we're doing is very much a hybrid i think and it crosses all the different sort of uh, areas of rock and jazz and improvised sort of modern classical music in a sense There's, there are those elements in it as well and I think uh, the way that people consume music these days on Spotify and Pandora and all those things means they listen to lots of different kinds of music as a matter of course you know rather than being identifying themselves with just one particular genre and that means I think people are much more open to uh, an eclectic experience uh, of a musical evening you know and uh, so it all, it all kind of works really well but to answer your question uh, yeah I'm very happy playing you know where i can see the audience and not just the first 20 rows you know and uh, and i love the, that kind of that sort of positive feedback from uh, from people sort of like having a really new experience you know now when we had emailed back and forth you said you were writing a solo album which will yeah. be a double album and you said it's much darker stuff what uh, made you decide to do another solo album and will you produce that because you or will you have someone produce that for you I did it all myself. Um, again, um, when I got the songs to a certain point, uh, I took it into the studio with Joel and Josh, and Josh played drums on a, most of the tracks, so we got live drums on it. Um, but yeah, it was a sort of period in my life where things were quite difficult, and um, uh, I was sort of living on my own for the first time in my life, really. Um, and uh, I just had a... Just all this music came out, you know, and I had the time to devote 24-7 to it, you know, so I was living in this apartment, basically, little apartment, and I had all my gear set up in one of the rooms, and, uh, and I just, uh, these songs would come out, I'd record them pretty much immediately, uh, and, um, yeah, so the, the songs are about quite sort of dark, sort of uh, painful subjects in a way, but I, I think that there's a sort of light to it as well, you know, uh, and the stuff I play to people, they, they sort of love it, you know, so there's uh, a mixture of approaches, you know, there's um, uh, you know, there's one song that's kind of like a sort of ten minute journey. You know, there are others that are more focused uh, bits of songwriting. I think one of the things I'm pleased with a lot of the songs are quite organic, so they don't just have a sort of verse chorus kind of structure, but they sort of develop as they go along, 
and some of them work a bit like some of the songs on David Bowie's uh, Black Star album, you know, where you take a couple of lines of lyric and kind of repeat them and develop that musical idea and then move on to the next section of lyric and develop that. It's more linear in its construction rather than the sort of uh, block structures of conventional pop songs. And uh, we've made a couple of videos as well, like this young uh, director guy who lives down in Margate, which is a town near me. It's done a great job, I think. So it's a very sort of homegrown project, and I deliberately want to keep it that way, keep it working with sort of the musicians that I work with and see every day and stuff, you know. Uh, and so it grows out of the, uh, this sort of Canterbury thing that's going on. But, um, but it's a project that's really close to my heart, and, uh, and I think uh, some of the best songs that I've written in a long time, because it, it, everything really comes from somewhere, but you know what I mean? It's not just like crafting songs, they're, they're compellingly going through me, it's this sense of channeling almost that I think you have when you're writing something important, and, um, and that's what this album has. Now, is that somewhat scary that it's like that, because you're really bearing your soul, and it's like yeah. anything, you know, when someone writes a book and if people don't like it, you know, it, if it's a personal to them, it, it hurts them. Is it hard to put something out that you said, you know, came from your heart? You're in a, a different time, you know, it, it's dark. Is it hard for you to release that just in case if anyone didn't like it? Would that, like, drive you crazy? No, I, I've certainly been around the block enough, you know, to accept that, you know, people have their particular tastes, and I will get that there will be a lot of people who wouldn't particularly like this, you know. Um, no, I, I think it's... Uh, it's a compulsion, you know, to do it, and uh, uh, I think, uh, yeah, I, I feel able to deal with whatever the reaction might be to it, you know. And uh, uh, but I know that um, I think Wang Chung's would would really Wang Chung fans would really get into it, and I think Quartet fans would get into it. But I think people who want to have us kind of, because you know, again, growing up in the late sixties, seventies, you know, concept albums were, you know people were doing that stuff and I'm not saying this is a concept album exactly but the sort of beginning uh, ties up with the end if you know what I mean and it's a sort of journey that you go through there's a sort of structure to the way the songs work together there are certain themes that keep returning that link the songs together and certain musical ideas that keep coming back and stuff so it's a sort of it's a sort of proper sort of developed musical journey if you like so um, I think the thing for me is you know I, I kind of love it and I think other people will love it you know as an artist that has to be your credo in a sense you know you do do what you love and if you love it other people will love it now will you go and tour with this and play live gigs live gigs with this album I would love to do that. That's a slightly sort of daunting prospect, you know, because I think it would be quite challenging to play it in all sorts of ways, you know. But yeah, I would love to do that. And uh, so I can see maybe uh, next year, you know, doing some gigs around this and um, whether I would combine it with some Wang Chung stuff as well, I'm not sure. Uh, I think next year there may well be some gigs where we do the, the orchestral stuff as well. So, so I think this year I want to be my year of releasing everything that's uh, uh, that I that I want to put out, and uh, next year I'd like to be my year of uh, touring and performance and, and performing as much of this stuff as I can. Now, you said uh, also in the email that uh, Wang Chung it's re-releasing their material in October. How does that happen? Did they sit there? Did they have you do newer versions, or how does that come up, come about? Well, I think it's. You know, the, the Wang Chung catalogue has never really been remastered and put out coherently on CD, you know. Uh, and uh, so it's just something, you know, a bunch of people have said to us, you know, when are you going to do that? And then this guy uh, who's based in New York came to us and said, this is what I do. You know, I do these remasterings and, uh, and we'll do a deal with Cherry Red and we'll do this. And this guy, Vinnie Vero, his name, he's so great very meticulous and, and the kind of guy who loves <laughs> kind of wandering around tape archives and finding boxes dusty boxes you know and checking out what they are and all that stuff you know so basically he's he's been instrumental in getting this all together for us you know but it's uh, in a sense way overdue you know um, but we're, we're doing it properly uh, with you know we've researched all the tape archives we've written Nick and I have both written quite long essays if you like about uh, our memories of the time and what we were doing at that time and uh, you know Vinnie sort of dug out every remix and every outtake of Dance All Days and everybody of fun you could imagine so for completists it's going to be a dream I think you know and um, 
for people who are interested, I think at last there'll be good sounding uh, versions of the of the songs, uh, well, of the entire catalogue out there, and it will be in a kind of like a properly curated kind of state. Now, on your website, wangchung.org, there's a video from Dancing mm-hmm. Daisy orchestral version. What is it like shooting a video now, like compared to back being in the day when videos were everything? Is it is it yeah. easier because it's there's better technology now, or when, how's the experience for you? Well, you know, I, I sort of thought. I would never shoot a video again in my life, you know, and yet I shot this video in Prague in December. I shot two in Margate in February, and then I shot another one in London for Everybody Have Fun Tonight at the new version uh, in in March, I think it was, you know. So within the space of four months, I shot four videos. And I guess these days it's like, you know, shooting them back in the 80s was a, a big deal, you know, and it was like making a movie and the they were film cameras and it was a crew and it was catering and it was all the stuff as if you were making a movie. You know? Nowadays, it's kind of like not exactly shooting on your iPhone, it certainly wasn't that. But, uh, you know, the Dance All Days video, uh, we worked with a great director called Armando who came with us to Prague, but he just had two cameras, you know, the one he was shooting on, which was a sort of like, a, you know, a proper beautiful stills camera, but it did video. And then he had a proper American a friend of his who was shooting on a like a nice quality film camera but but he just did it out, out of nothing basically you know? and, and I think he did a great job with uh, that dance all days video and um, you know we've done this whole orchestral album and uh, you know when I listened to the version of dance all days that, that we've done I thought yeah it's, it's pretty good but when I saw the video with it I thought no this is great it, it made total sense of the track in the way that a really great video should you know now, with the 80s being so big, they've made a comeback, which is great because I'm a huge 80s guy. Will you guys go on the road together? Because I, I, I went to see an 80s show. Uh, Michael Aston had uh, caught me in Philly to see the 80s tour, and Wang Chung was there, and I met Nick after the show, but you weren't there. But will you guys no. be playing live together again? I would like to do that, yeah. But um, I think, you know, I mean, I'm happy to play Dance Days to anybody who wants me to play it to them, you know. But those uh, tours, as they stand at the moment, tend to be a lot of traveling and a lot of time, basically, uh, to play three or four songs somewhere, you know. And uh, to me, it's not a, a sort of good use of the time, you know. I, I did it for a little while, uh, but I don't do it these days so much. But I think if we could get together a tour where we were doing a, a proper set, uh, which sort of encompassed some of the, the, the interesting aspects of the band, and especially if it was geared up to promoting the re-releases, uh, uh, then, then I'd certainly be up for doing it. So it's not like I'm not into touring, but far from it. I, I, I love it, but I would like it to be, you know, where the band can present itself in, in a sort of a full way, if you know what I mean, you know, rather than just being there to play the hits and, and then run off and, and um, sit and wait for the next gig, you know. Now, when will your solo album be out? choose what songs you'll release first because you said it's very it's very a personal very personal experience this this album yeah. too how do you decide which songs you'll you'll release first i mean because it's you know it's a double album that made just a lot of songs that's it that's right yeah i guess it's a bit arbitrary you know the, the two songs that i'm gonna put but we've done the videos for are a couple of the first songs that i wrote on the project so they to me have the sort of power if you like of the invested in the project in many ways uh, they're not necessarily the most commercial things but in this uh, day and age I'm not sure that releasing a I mean I don't know that there's an overtly commercial song on, on the album there, there are certainly songs with lots of hooks in them and stuff you know but I think uh, it's about presenting character and integrity and, and a sort of sense of uh, who you are you know and uh, so that's what these songs will establish and, uh, and then I'll just see how it develops, really. You know, if there's sort of more interest, wider interest, um, then we can sort of upscale the whole thing in terms of uh, how we present it. And uh, if it just remains pretty much a, a, a local interest thing and just, you know, fans of mine, you know, from, from back in the 80s and stuff, then that, that's great too. Uh, 
taking the time to talk today, Jack. Uh, I know the website is wangchung.org, but how can people keep up with you for, you know, you release your new album and just the stuff you're doing and the, and the quartet? How do people keep up with you? Well, I guess probably right now uh, Twitter is good, so Jack Hughes one is my Twitter account, so you can follow me on that. Um, not that much happens at the moment, but <laughs> uh, there will be a lot happening. Uh, and uh, Wang Chung, Wang Chung Band, the sort of Facebook account, I quite often That's awesome. People, make sure you check Jack out. And uh, also, don't forget to, uh, you know, Google Wang Chung. Listen to the music, you know, and, and look forward to the remaster stuff. So don't forget, it's wangchung.org, uh, Jack1, or you just Google. When you go into Twitter, just type in Jack Hughes, and it's H-U-E-S, and it'll take you right to, you know, where he is. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at CooperTalk. That's at CooperTalk. Also, email me, Cooper, at coopertalk.net. I have over 725 episodes up on there. And uh, check me out on Instagram, CooperTalk1. So remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next time.